Hello, I'm Jeremy Allaire and welcome to The Money Movement, a show where we explore the issues and ideas driving this brave new world of digital currency and blockchains. So this week we're going to be diving into the role of digital dollar stablecoins in the United States financial system. 2020 has been a really big year for digital dollar stablecoins. We have seen a surge uh, in their usage. Uh, in particular, we've seen a surge in the issuance and usage of so-called regulated digital dollar stablecoins such as USDC and others. Um, we're walking into a time when the uh, leading regulators, leading financial regulators in the world, the Financial Stability Board, uh, have been setting uh, regulatory policy and working towards regulatory policy uh, around digital currency. Uh, and we have the backdrop of uh, Libra uh, on the horizon and uh, it, uh, attempting to and uh, preparing to launch. Uh, likewise, uh, we're seeing just heightened interest and activity, uh, especially from uh, the largest fintechs in the world. Uh, just an increasing amount of activity uh, that's taking place in this space and uh, around this space. And uh, we are really just in an incredibly exciting time uh, around, uh, you know, stablecoins and digital currency right now. Um, and so this week is, is I think, going to be uh, a very special, uh, a very special episode. And we have an opportunity to talk with uh, someone who is really at the forefront of thinking about uh, stable coins in the U.S. financial system um, and uh, to dive into all of this and much, much more. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome a special guest, Comptroller Brian Brooks, currently serving as the acting head of the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC for the U.S. Treasury Department, and someone who has spent decades working on major issues and innovations facing the financial system. Uh, so very pleased to uh, welcome Brian uh, to the show. Bear with us for a moment. We have a Zoom loading issue for Comptroller Brooks. There we go. Now I got you. Hooray. Okay, welcome, fantastic. Brian. How are you? I'm really good. You missed an amazing introduction. I'll, I, that, that's probably good for both of us. <laughs> well, w welcome. Um, uh, super, super excited to have you here and talk about all of this today. Um, maybe we can just get started. I think it's always helpful for people to just hear a little bit about you. Um, you know, kind of tell us a little bit of how you kind of arrive where you are and, and, and your interest and focus on, on, on these issues as well. Well, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to do that and Jeremy to join this podcast. I know there's been an illustrious list of prior speakers and a big audience that you've got. So first of all, thank you very much for having me and, and giving me this platform today. Um, you know, when, when people ask me, how, how did I first become interested in things like the future of money in fintech generally, in stable coins and payments and crypto in specific, for me, it all comes back to a period of time when I worked at Fannie Mae, which is a giant and really, really important company um, that moves very slowly. Uh, very important, moves very slowly. 
And there was a famous story where the CEO of Fannie Mae and I went out to San Francisco for our very first FinTech meeting. This was like in early 2016, I wanna say. Maybe it, was, maybe it was late 15, but it was in that time frame. And uh, so we went out there to meet this particular FinTech company and it was supposed to be a day trip. But while we were flying out there, the storm of the century came into Washington DC and it closed down the airport for five days. So we were stuck in the Bay Area for five days with no clothes, no place to stay and nothing to do. And so we thought, well, since we're here, the right thing to do would be for us to go ahead and network among the FinTech crowd to find out what people are doing. And that's when we found out the many ways in which technology can radically improve uh, speed, price, access to mm -hmm. traditional financial products and services. Uh, for example, you know, when we went out there, we were dealing with a mortgage cycle time that was basically 70 days from application to funding of the mortgage. A lot can happen in 70 days. That was a really yeah. terrible customer experience. People lost houses because it took so long to get a mortgage. Suddenly, we discovered that there were these uh, apps being built that would allow you to essentially access all of a customer's financial data without having to ask them for any documents. And you right. can cut the 70 days to 10. So that's where it all started, was realizing that as important as finance is, we had really been rooted in a lot of practices that were somewhere between 30 and 100 years old and tech can right. help. You know that you and I worked together at Coinbase. Uh, when I was at Coinbase, you were at Circle. We put yeah. together one of the most important stablecoin projects in the world. And you know that's just another version of the same thing. Yeah. Dollars are important. The US dollar is still you know, hanging on as the global reserve currency. But technology features, the use of a better set of transmission rails can make it faster and more attractive than its competitors. And uh, so all of those things are wrapped up in the same thing. Traditional finance is important, slow. We can make it better, faster, cheaper. It's kind of like the $6 million man, all of those things. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, I, I mean, maybe that, that leads us right into this discussion. So you, you've obviously... Uh, been outspoken about the role and the potential of stable coins, digital dollar stable coins in the U.S. financial system. Um, uh, you, you've written about it. Uh, you've written op-eds, uh, and and you've certainly uh, you know talked about it. Um, you know, what is the role? I mean, is it what you just said? Is it is this uh, is this uh, fundamentally just a, a a major payment system innovation that is moving ahead and, 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 it, and the US financial system should benefit from that? Or, or how do you think about that at a really high level? Well, uh, you know, I, Jeremy, I think there are a lot of ways uh, of thinking about stable coins. There's sort of a short term, a medium term and a long term way of, of thinking about how they can improve our, our uh, sort of system. But what I think about it in the first instance is it's an issue of competitiveness. So, so you know, when I talk about stable coins, what I sort of say is, the dollar has been the reserve currency for a long period of time, not because it's necessarily better um, or easier to use or, or anything. It, it's, it's the most liquid currency because of a set of historical anomalies that happened sometime between the end of World War II and the mid-50s. Right. And the world we live in isn't that world anymore. So the dollar is still the reserve currency, but only because we're still running on that history. Yeah. The problem is the history is not likely to preserve our role as the reserve currency forever. And you see this in the fact that global central banks have been reducing their dollar holdings and diversifying away from the dollar yeah. every quarter going back now four, five, six years. Uh, this seems to be an inevitable trend. We're still the most important, but we're way less the most yeah. important than we used to be. Right. And in a world of competition, my view is that the dollar needs to transact more uh, attractively than others, right? So if, if we're no more liquid, than the renminbi or the euro or something at some point in the future, we could still be the currency of choice 
if the transactional mechanism for dollars is superior to the transactional right. mechanism of other kinds of things. And so I think it's that suite of issues that stable coins and blockchain can ultimately um, uh, yeah. help us with is to preserve the yeah. role of the dollar in the system. Yeah, we, we, we sort of have this superstructure that got created, uh, you know, definitely pre-internet. Uh, yep. And we, we, we've sort of seen electronic money, you know, evolve in, in different ways. And now you have the superstructure of the internet and you have, you know, obviously the dollar as, uh, as this preeminent uh, reserve currency. And so it's sort of like, how do you turbocharge that? How do you put those together and For just sure. make, get, give the dollar, you know, the superpowers of the internet? <laughs> Is that That's right. Exactly. We, we used to call it the programmable dollar. You know, the, right. the stable coin was to the dollar what email was to the letter. You're still yeah. typing, you're still sending information. Right. Man, it's faster and you can attach videos, copy right. multiple people, and it's free. Right. right. I mean, th this is the, 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 you know, the, the whole story of the internet, right? It sort of took, took things that were, you know, slow and expensive and proprietary and oftentimes, you know, tied down to one either company or country or whatever. And, and, and then it sort of made them ubiquitous, open, interoperable, global, free, frictionless, et cetera. And so we have that with digital content. We have that with digital communications. We, we obviously need that with digital money. Um, as well. And I, I, one of the themes actually that I, I want to touch on is, is really around the sort of how this happens, how, how, how this becomes more important in the financial system. And we have a history of electronic money innovation. People sort of say, well, we already have, you know, electronic money. And, and that's true in that, like, you know, back when it became possible to send money between banks, an association of private sector actors got together and created something called SWIFT. And that was a, a, a electronic messaging system that uh, allowed banks to sort of let each other know what they owed each other. And um, that was electronic money. That was sort of the birth, but it was essentially a consortium of private sector actors that came up with, in that case, like a centralized technology. And then later in the seventies and the eighties, you know, the, the, the sort of, I guess the electronic money that everyday people became accustomed to were like credit cards or debit cards. It was sort of, I had this thing that wasn't, wasn't a paper, it wasn't paper money, it wasn't a paper check, it was this sort of electronified kind of concept of money that people could could interact with. And, and similarly there, you know, you had you had essentially private sector actors coming together, forming associations and consortiums, defining technical standards for interoperability to kind of make it work. Um, and you know, the, 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 the US government didn't need to come in and build that, right? The, the, that was something that the, the private sector could do. And those models sort of have, have kind of gotten us these innovations in electronic money. And now we're the next logical place, which is internet dollars and internet currency. And um, it, it, is the private sector gonna play a similar role basically it, it, is the answer here, you know, to really see this at scale do we need these consortium models and associations and sort of self-regulatory frameworks um, that sort of work within the broader mandate of, uh, of the financial system regulations? Yeah, well, well, look, so, so that's the inflection point that we're at right now, right? Is, is, is this the kind of thing that should be built by the government or should we follow history and let the United States do what the United States does best, which is harness its strong market-oriented incentivized private sector to build something cool that everybody actually wants. What I would say is um, I think that one way of thinking about where this all goes is the idea that, that there are public goods that don't necessarily have to be delivered by the government, right? So there's such a thing as public ownership that is different from government ownership. And blockchain is the classic example of that. So, you know, Im imagine a world where you, you started in American history with one central authority in finance, which was the first bank of the United States. 
Mm -hmm. And that was the, the dominant central force in finance. Then decentralization was achieved in the 1860s when, when this agency that I work at was founded. Uh, decentralization in the sense of we decided not to have one bank in the United States. We decided to have a network of privately owned national banks all across the country that would operate yeah. and interact with each other in a certain way. But there was now more than one of them. And there were multiple of them in every state. And that was, that was thought to be a good thing. It was more resilient, more accessible to people locally, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Then, you know, as, as you described, various kinds of money transmission and payments technologies came about, which decentralized the system still further. Yeah. Those banks started creating networks of, of various kinds, SWIFT as an example. But think about the credit card networks, where what became the Visa network was yeah. originally Bank AmeriCard. It was a single entity, right? And then they, then they open sourced it and those happened. The, what, what I always find puzzling when we talk about this is why, given that history, people now believe that the payments system is a government service. It's definitely a public good in the economic sense yeah. of there are benefits created by it that cannot be fully captured by the owners. So in that sense, it is a public good. But why do we think it has to be owned by the, the government when none of the things we've yeah. just described were ever owned by the government? My personal view is the ultimate public ownership of the payment rails is when you have a network like the internet yeah. of interconnected institutions and computers that are maintaining ledgers and allowing direct person-to-person -person transactions. So as you said at the beginning, the internet's the classic example of that. And so right. I think we're way down the path of decentralization. I think we're now maybe close to the point where we will achieve ultimate decentralization. Yeah. But we've been on this journey for 200 years. Yeah, and, and this is parallelized in a lot of industries, right? This is, you know, this is sort of the, the, the financial industry has a history of this and it's going further in, in some respects. And, you know, pu public blockchains are by definition public goods. They exist for right. the whole world uh, yep. and not just for moving money, for all kinds of interesting proofs of ownership and, and, and record keeping and zillions right. of other applications, right? right. And, and yet public doesn't mean government, right? It's something Absolutely. that can spontaneously spring right. up in a market. Yeah. Right. And it, it is public in that the, the intellectual property is open and accessible to anyone. Yep. It's open source. Uh, people can freely contribute the standards and the communities around them. People can gather to build those. So we, we, uh, we've certainly seen that work um, in, in many spheres. And, and it does feel like with public chains and things like stable coins, we're starting to see that you know, happening uh, in, a, in, a, in a nascent way in the financial system here. I guess um, one, one other uh, uh, question, you know, specifically on stable coins, I think, um, you know, one of the things that is important um, to, to, to these today, at least in the nascent markets that they're serving today is these are fully reserved uh, assets, right? These are fully reserved, um, you know, uh, and that's really important, right? Uh, it's not fractional reserve money. Uh, the the reserves are not uh, lent out ten times uh, uh, as as you would say with traditional commercial bank money. Um, you know, if stablecoins grow, if these sort of digital dollars that are full reserve that that have these sort of um, safety and soundness mechanisms behind them, maybe those eventually become more explicit from a regulatory perspective. But does that actually? Um, create a shift in, in ultimately kind of risk management um, in, in the banking sector? Does that ultimately, if, if more and more transactions are in these digital cash, digital dollar type of things, does that change how people think about even things like Basel III requirements? I know like in China with DCEP, uh, when, a, when a bank converts their electronic money into DCEP, uh, you know, that, that DCP, DCEP, like they can't go fractional lend on it. It's, it's considered like 
m zero right it, it sort of has that state so is is there something there over the over perhaps over the long term that has to be thought about in this yeah well so so let's unpack that just for a minute because there's a there's a lot in that question so let me start with the concept that uh, stable coins are fully reserved and everything so um they should be and you know the most credible recent projects have been but we all know from some slightly less recent experience if you went back a couple of years there have been stablecoin projects that, that weren't actually fully reserved and so one of the things i think that we in the regulatory community need to do is to provide some clarity about what are the reserve and audit expectations for these kinds of projects there are plenty of analogies out there that would help us do that you know there's the analogy uh, of our experience with prepaid cards with traveler's checks with other kinds of money transmission instruments but the first thing i would say is we we, we do need to say something about that to give users confidence yeah. that if they're trading in a stable coin, they're no less likely to lose their money than if they have, you know, a, a, a sports authority card or some other kind of instrument, right. some, some prepaid debit card that they can use. Right. And I think that's a place where we can create some confidence. I think there's, there's also another basic issue that, you know, everybody in this community needs to be thinking about and, and is thinking about. And that is when you're transacting on a blockchain, as opposed to through the bank built networks of SWIFT and ACH, et cetera, there are issues about customer identification and BSA, AML, you know, Bank Secrecy Act, anti-money laundering issues that have to be resolved and are being debated you know, in the government yeah. as, as we speak. So you have to take those seriously, but you also have to take seriously the demand side case for direct person-to-person -person value transfer and yeah. balance those concerns uh, to get to a place that has credibility with the public and credibility uh, you know, that it's not principally being used for, for illicit purposes, yeah. which I don't think it is, but those are things you need to talk about. In the longer term, you know, what I see happening here is, um, first of all, that having a internet native payment instrument is kind of inevitable. And when I say internet native, you know, the problem with the internet today is there are a lot of cool apps on your phone that you can use to transact value, but because they're not internet native, they're not interoperable with each other. Exactly. So for example, Jeremy, if you have Zelle on your phone and I have Venmo, yeah. and that's all we have, we, we can't send money to each other. It's a weird closed loop. Um, even if we both have Zelle, we are still depending on the clearing bank, clearing that transaction with each other. Versus in a fully open system, you know, kind of like in the way that my Gmail and your Hotmail can communicate sure. with each other. Yeah. SMTP or HTTP. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Right. And the way that we know this is what's inevitably coming is look at the major payment systems that have arisen just in the last 10 years. So take Stripe as an example. There's a reason why most Internet startups choose to use Stripe as their payments platform as opposed to using a bank as their direct payments vendor. And that is because Stripe is an Internet native payment processor. They, right. they, they know what they're about. They're, they're direct. They, they exist in cyberspace. Yeah. They're not a, a software that is engrafted onto those protocols. Right. And if that's the case with payment processing, it seems to be inevitable that internet native money yeah. would be the fastest and most uh, ease of use way yeah. of transmitting value across those networks. Uh, certainly concur, you know, on, on, on all that. Actually, I mean, maybe that's a good segue into talking a little bit about like, what are the fundamental innovations here with internet native money? Like we have these, uh, you know, we have cash, right? We have the sort of existing forms of bank electronic money uh, and and to, to varying degrees, like these closed loop, uh, you know, digital payment applications, like they're closed loop, they're, they're sort of a version of kind of bank electronic money. But, um, you know, the, the, you know, on a number of different fronts, right, the, the, the power here uh, is really different, right? So, 
uh, just you know, in terms of, of of interoperability, you just talked about that. This idea that uh, you know any digital wallet can pay any other digital wallet, kind of kind of anywhere is a big one. Um, but you know, just you know, speed, efficiency. Um, you, know, you know, what are your thoughts on some of the like fundamental utility value improvements that that come from this shift uh, towards digital dollar stable coins? Well, I mean, there there there, there are a lot that you can think of, but I'll, I'll just I'll just take a couple which I think are relevant. So, um, you know, one is if you take the fact, which is a fact many people are not aware of, something like 70% of loan defaults are, are not caused by inability to pay. They're caused by forgetfulness or they're caused by somebody's on vacation and they didn't come back until after the due date had passed. One of the features of stablecoins is because they're, they're programmable. So just like with your email, I can send an email to you and I can mark it for future delivery at a stated time and the computer will release it. Imagine a world in which you never had to not only write a check, but even make a payment ever again. Uh, all of your debits simply transacted on the internet at a stated time and place and could be drawn on, on a given day. So imagine if you could just manage downloading so that, that sort of late fees. Improves financial health by virtue. It improves financial health for, yeah. for, for sure. I mean, that, that's definitely one, one way of that happening. Another really interesting way uh, that, that I think about it is, you, know, you may have seen we recently uh, chartered a new bank here at the OCC called Borrow Bank. Yep. And one of the things that Varo does for their customers, but imagine if this was universal, was they allow customers to receive their paycheck funds 48 hours before the funds hit. Mm -hmm. Well, in a world of programmability, if I could simply ping the system and ascertain that you have a paycheck coming in two days yeah. and the blockchain shows me that, it's pre-programmed yeah. to release that on that day, then I, as your bank, would be much more comfortable going ahead and giving you access to those funds today. It wouldn't have to just be yeah. Varo Bank, but any bank yeah. can do that. So the programmability feature, the instantaneous settlement features, you know, all of those things would be, would be I think, game changers. Um, but to me, what it really comes down to is the idea of internet native payments. Right. The internet native processors have literally millions of customers who are merchants and other kinds of uh, businesses doing business on, on the web. If you had a native payment system for that, that could transact globally, yeah. that could transact instantly, that's always going to be better than the current system, which has time yeah. delays, chargeback risks, and other kinds of things. I yeah, mean, the liquidity I mean, enhancement alone is a yeah. huge juice to the economy. Yeah. So any person, any business, kind of settling a transaction with a counterparty in seconds with right. no, with 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 very high levels of security, and and with you know with sort of third generation blockchains, we're now seeing transaction costs that can really get you know approaching zero effectively in the same way. Like we don't think about how much it costs to send an email. We don't think about a cross-border email. You know, we just sort of we have right. this like free right. communications platform that everyone just kind of connects to. Exactly, and and I would just comment, Jeremy, that these things, you know, in the public's mind, they need to evolve a little bit for the public to sort of understand what yeah. the current state of technology is. There was a time period, you know, if you remember, where with cell phones, nobody wanted to use them because taking an incoming call cost the incoming recipient a right. dollar a minute. Right. That seems ridiculous, right? But in the early days, that's how it worked. And then the pricing yeah. model settled down and the technology improved, et cetera. Yeah. We're certainly, yeah, continuing to see innovation happen on the technology uh, front. And, and I think, you know, the next couple months will be pretty interesting uh, on, on, that, uh, on that level. One of the things that actually, which you mentioned, which I, I think is about, you know, building trust in this, there's obviously like the reserve and audit and, and you know, kind of the compliance requirements that have to get wrapped around this. But I think one of the really critical things that I think is a misunderstanding, but is really important certainly for, for banks and financial institutions, which is sort of the traceability and the auditability of this kind of internet native money. And, um, you, know, it, you know, theoretically, you know, 
while these can be kind of uh, uh, you know secure private transactions, there's also an incredible amount of auditability here, whether that's from a financial audit perspective or a law enforcement audit perspective or, or whatnot. Um, you know, as you know, uh, a key regulator in the United States that that you know cares uh, clearly cares a lot about these issues. How do you think about those issues? Traceability, auditability, the ability for law enforcement to do their job. Yeah, well. Um, I, I think these are complicated issues that, that have to be taken seriously, by which I don't mean um, that there's only one issue that matters here, uh, right? So uh, I, I begin with the idea that money laundering and terrorism financing are unacceptable in our society, and we're in a world of elevated risk. I think we've known that since 9-11, and I think right now is about as unstable a period as any of us remember since 9-11. So those, those are important issues that governments have to grapple with. And as I say, we, we are grappling with it. My colleagues at FinCEN, at the Treasury Department and other places are looking very seriously at what is the right way to allow this technology to grow without compromising those kinds of legitimate sort of public safety, national security kinds of concerns. Yeah. So I, I can't overemphasize that. At the same time, I think it's really clear in a free society that there is some amount of privacy, including financial privacy, that is an important value. I, I sort of think about the prevalence of secure um, you know, text messaging apps. There's a reason people use WhatsApp. You know, it's encrypted end to end. Well, why do we allow that? You know, it's hard for the postal inspectors to read your WhatsApp messages. And yet as a society, I think there's a broad consensus that it's okay for people to have a sphere of privacy in that world. Yeah. Or if you take the iPhone, you know, which was used uh, by the San Bernardino shooters a few years ago to do various things, that was a classic example of a an absolutely abhorrent criminal act that caused lots of death and also had one of the iconic American companies refuse to unencrypt the phone because their belief is that their whole yeah. mission is to provide privacy. And you know, on yeah. the theory that hard facts make bad law, they didn't want that example to tear down this privacy uh, structure that they had built. Yeah. So I think we have to ask really hard value questions as a country <laughs> about how do we balance these concerns thinking that we can have private wallet-to-wallet -wallet transactions across blockchains that can't be traced by CypherTrace or Elliptic or whatever, uh, ever, is probably a non-starter in a world where we have real enemies abroad that, uh, mm -hmm. that would seek to use uh, you know, financial services against us. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, telling Americans that all of their private transactions have to be surveilled by the government at all times is probably not also right. a winning message. So right. we need to find a balance there. I don't know what the balance is, but I know that we're having discussions yeah. and, and we're gonna figure something out and we'll evolve over time. And this is global, right? Open societies, uh, you know, freedom of communication, uh, a, right. a lot of different dimensions here that, that have an overlay, obviously, on, on the financial system as well. Um, for sure. So, so at, you know, as this sort of gets more real for the, the you know, the established uh, financial sector, obviously, you know, banks are, are new to crypto. Your recent guidance has, has certainly opened the door for banks as custodians, as payment infrastructure providers, sort of to begin to open up to this kind of fundamental innovation. And, and I know, you know, uh, front row seat on this for the last seven years in the past, and, and certainly very much still, there's been a lot of focus within the banking sector on risk and compliance issues, you know, as as banks wade into this, uh, you know, what are the core risk and compliance issues that banks need to be looking at uh, as they begin to add these kinds of rails, these, this, kind of, this kind of digital asset infrastructure, other things, what are the major issues for them to think about? Yeah, well, so, so there, there are a number of issues, but I, you know, I would start with the obvious issue of BSA AML, which we talked about. That, that's always gonna be the most important thing in any kind of a public 
you know, publicly accessible money transmission networks. So, yep. so figuring that out and getting that right is always going to be, I think, job number one. But there are a bunch of other things too. You know, so banks are used to managing the technology and operational risk associated with ACH and SWIFT. Sure. And by the way, those risks are not trivial. I mean, the, the percentage of chargebacks and fraud and other errors on those networks is shockingly high. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not like banks are not used to that risk or don't have practices for managing it. Yeah. But connecting to blockchains is a little bit different because on a blockchain, you can't get the money back, right? Mm -hmm. So once it's gone, right. uh, it's, it's gone. Right. Uh, or uh, if, if you can get the money back, it's only through like a 51% attack or something, which is right. even worse than the money being gone. Somebody can yeah. rewrite the ledger if they have enough computing power. So uh, at least on certain kinds of blockchains. So, so those are things that we need to think about, um, technology and operational risk for sure. Um, and, and then of course, there's the issue at a broader level, and this is not for an individual bank to manage, but it is something the system has to think about, which comes back to something you said earlier, it's sort of about money supply and monetary policy and how do we think about these digitized assets? Yeah. Yes, they're fully reserved, and so the binding constraint is the amount of M1 that the Fed puts into the economy, yeah. but as the velocity of money uh, gets faster and faster, how confident can we be that at any given moment in time, those one-to-one -one, uh, relationships between reserves and stable coins are being maintained? And if they're not being maintained, what does it do to the actual money supply? And yeah. you know, since money supply affects interest rates and it affects inflation and other kinds of things, we need to think about all of those things. So I think there are a number of things to manage through. But what I come back to, Jeremy, is for people who say, well, that's a lot of risk, so I, I don't think we can manage through it. What I say is it's inevitable that we have to manage through it. In America, in a market democracy, the consumer rules. And when you get to a place where 40 or 50 million people want something, they're going to have it. And it's only an issue of us doing the hard work to figure out what the yeah. framework is for. And I always come back to the Uber example. Every municipal government in America wanted to ban Uber. And the only reason they failed is because too many right. tens of millions of Americans said, no, no. Too, too good on service. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, I, I've made this point, and, and actually it leads into something that you touched on earlier. I want to I bring back to the forefront of the conversation a little bit, which is the geopolitical dimensions of some of this. And, and you know, I, I think one of the things that a lot of people have noted is that in, in a world of internet native money, of digital dollar stable coins, uh, you know, in many ways, um, you know, people all around the world can kind of vote with their smartphone what economic system they want to participate in. Um, they can download a digital wallet from an app store and they can start, you know, sending and receiving stable coins and, and digital currency in, in that way. And, you know, we're, we're going to see a lot of people in a lot of places say voting, I'd like to be, uh, you know, part of the dollar economy. Um, that happens already informally and formally. You know, there's dollar banking in lots of countries and there's an, obviously huge informal economies of cash and dollars and everywhere. And there's 500 billion, you know, physical dollars shipped out each year uh, into the world. But, um, you know, the, the, um, th this phenomenon, you know, it, it sort of does have these sort of geopolitical dimensions to it. You have, you know, uh, China launching internet native money um, and, and as I've pointed out, I've, I've had people who are, you know, from the PBOC on the show here talking about it, you know, you, you will have the ability for anyone with a digital wallet in the world, theoretically, to settle a transaction directly with the People's Bank of China uh, in their particular model, uh, or perhaps settle it through, uh, you know, uh, another digital wallet app. But the ability for, uh, you know, digital currency to exist where the internet exists, um, it, it does, in, in some ways, uh, 
increase the competition for reserve currencies and, and how they're used in business around the world. And this is, you know, this is a geopolitical issue. Um, it's not just a payment system innovation issue or an efficiency issue. And, you know, we're, we're seeing countries such as China making digital currency and blockchain technology a core strategic focus. Uh, but I think here in the United States, the position of the government um, could be viewed as neutral at best. And there's certainly not, at least not yet, any kind of national policy or agenda on leading in this space. There's certainly a lot of private sector activity. Many of the leading private sector actors in this industry are here. They're in many countries around the world as well. But you know, is there, is there something more to do here? How do we get there? How can the United States lead? Yeah, well, so, so look, these are great questions. I, I wouldn't write off the United States in this area by any means, but I would definitely acknowledge that we are slow off the blocks and we don't have a single strategy that has been endorsed you know, at, the, at the highest level. But as you know, there are a number of people in you know, senior roles in the administration and, and elsewhere who have really focused on this and more over time. I mean, yeah. We have a CFTC chairman who has made it a public mission of theirs to grow you know, America's leadership in this space. You have a newly reconfirmed SEC commissioner who's very focused on these issues. Yes. You have me, you have yeah. the chief technology officer of the United States who came out of Silicon Valley and is a crypto guy. There are a lot of people, uh, more maybe than most people realize, in the government who are very focused on these things. Um, I think there's both an optimistic view and a pessimistic view of the future on the question you're raising. And the optimistic view would say, um, hey, it's, it's actually great that uh, China is doing what they're doing and what we're doing uh, and, and the, you know, the private sector in the U.S. is doing what we're doing because once you have stable coins and markets can have more of an influence in which currency they select and as you put it, right. which economic system they want to participate in, it'll be harder for authoritarian regimes to prop up their currency artificially as China yep. has for many years. Um, you know, it, it'll be way easier for people to decide what that currency is really worth and to sort of bargain that down if, if that's the right thing. So bringing those market forces to bear, I think has to be a good thing. The other optimistic part of this future also is in a world where like foreign exchange is a significant component of international trade, like just that the need to yeah. change dollars into yen or whatever to buy or sell commodities in Japan is itself like a 7% tax on the transaction. Right. And imagine if you could take all of that out because the yen never productive capital. I've, I've got a stable coin, which is a representation of money that is held yeah. at the Bank of Japan, but right. the money's not leaving the Bank of Japan. So there's yeah. no foreign exchange. Yeah. That's the optimistic view. Yeah. The pessimistic view is, is this, which is in a world where the dollar has been the reserve currency and is the price, it's, it's, the, it's the currency in which almost all global commodities are stated. Americans get an inherent discount every time we buy things on the, on the global markets. Other countries know this. They think it's unfair. It might actually be unfair. And so in a world where there are, there's that much economic pressure to uh, use other currencies than dollars, the only way to maintain our primacy is to add features, right? If we can't lower the price, then at least we can add features and deliver value for money here, such that it's fair for people to trade in dollars because, hey, it's faster, it's more liquid, whatever. But in the current world where we're the only country that doesn't have to change our currency to buy oil in Saudi Arabia, even the Saudis have to change money into, into dollars to buy their own oil, that can't last forever. And so we need to envision a future where we're being competitive as opposed to complacent. Yeah. Well, lots of, uh, lots of room for, for, for you know, US-led innovation here um, 
on, on many fronts. So last, last question here. Um, you know, you, you, you have seen a lot of evolution uh, in this space. Uh, you see the pace of change. You see kind of the, the fundamentals of the, of the transformation that's possible. You know, just for a moment, step back. You know, where do you see all this in, in, in three to five years? And, and how, in that time frame, how can this lead to very durable improvements in the U.S. financial system? Well, there's a, there's a, so three to five years is tricky. If you'd said 30 years, I think I'd give you a more accurate uh, vision. I think three to five years has a lot of dependencies on, does our economy reopen in the next six months? What happens with the presidential election? What happens with China on various uh, immediate issues of, of national sure. security? So, but what I would say is if you kind of assume a steady state on all of those things, what I think will happen is Three to five years from now, I think banks will be connecting to blockchains the same way that they connect to uh, SWIFT and ACH and other networks. Right. Once they do that, the nature of banking will begin to change because while banking will always, I, I believe, be the key on-ramp and the key value-add service provider yeah. to people, people's financial services lives, they will not be the bottleneck of the transaction of financial services. Instead, they will be nodes on a network along with a lot of other nodes, many of which won't yeah. be banks. And that will really change, I think, and allow banks to focus on what they're best at and what we really need them to do. So I think that will happen for sure. I do think that in a world of geopolitical instability, crypto assets in general will grow and become a more significant part of people's lives. That's one of the reasons why you know, I believe Bitcoin prices are going up in an environment of perceived instability is people yeah. start to believe that the sovereigns are you know, maybe not yeah. as trustworthy as they once were. Bitcoin is not generated by any sovereign. Maybe that's a thing to hang on to. So I think you'll see more of that. But over time, you know, the world tends toward more um, sort of uh, stability, right? Things reach equilibrium. And so since decentralized things are more stable than centralized things, I would predict that the movement that started 200 years ago with the First Bank of the United States, a movement toward more decentralization, will continue. Banks will adapt to that. They will add value to that. And, uh, and the world will go on. But it will go on in a cheaper, faster, more accessible way than it has before. And that'll be through the good work of, of people like you. So that'll be my view. It's awesome. The money movement continues. <laughs> um, awesome, Brian. Uh, it was uh, awesome to have you on. Thank you so much. And uh, obviously, hope to see you again soon. Jeremy, real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, a lot to process there. Uh, you know, clearly, we are uh, at an inflection point. This rise of digital dollar stable coins appears to be ready to cross the chasm from the early adopter uh, phase to the and the disruptive innovator phase into more of the uh, mainstream acceptance uh, phase in the years to come. Uh, we're going to be chronicling all of it here on the money movement. On that note, next week, we're going to uh, do a deep dive into the power of stablecoins as a payment and settlement medium in purely digital tokenized securities and financial contracts. We've always seen stablecoins on public chains as a kind of base layer uh, and a kind of precondition to the very big idea of tokenized assets and financial contracts. And next week, we're going to be joined by Michael Carpentier, who's CEO and co-founder of a startup called Vesta Equity, who are building a marketplace for tokenized home equity, making residential real estate more liquid, creating new investment opportunities that uh, remove intermediaries introduce, uh, that introduce so much cost and friction into real estate finance, something that uh, we touched on earlier uh, here today. And we're also going to be joined by Securitize CEO and co-founder Carlos Domingo, whose firm is at the forefront 
of enabling companies to issue digital securities. We're going to deep dive into the cutting edge world of stable coins and digital securities. Until next time, uh, stay well, stay safe, and stay informed. Thank you. Thank you.